You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to episode number 207 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Welcome to the podcast. As y'all recall, when we left off last time, it was the summer of 1862 and Union General Don Carlos Buell was struggling eastward toward Chattanooga, repairing the tracks of the Memphis and Charleston Railroad as he went to use as his supply line. But that rail line and Buell's tenuous link all the way back to his supply base at Louisville, Kentucky, proved to be especially vulnerable to Confederate cavalry raids. And that, coupled with Buell's natural cautiousness, meant that the Union advance toward Chattanooga slowed to a crawl. Taking advantage of Buell's slow march eastward, Confederate General Braxton Bragg shifted the bulk of his army from northern Mississippi to Chattanooga. Because the Federals had previously captured the rail hub at Corinth, the 30,000 rebels had to take a roundabout railroad journey to Chattanooga, which ended up covering over 770 miles during the last week or so of July. But the movement was successful and was one of the great strategic uses of railroads during the Civil War. On the last day of July, after arriving in Chattanooga, Bragg met with Edmund Kirby Smith, who commanded the Department of East Tennessee, and who had come down from his headquarters in Knoxville for this conference with Bragg. There was the potential for trouble here, since coordination between the two men could prove difficult, due to the fact that Kirby Smith and Braxton Bragg were both major generals. Bragg technically outranked Smith, but military protocol dictated that Bragg wouldn't actually be able to issue orders to Smith unless the two men were in the field at the same place at the same time. But despite the awkward command situation, Bragg and Kirby Smith got on well at their meeting in Chattanooga. Smith had lobbied for Bragg to bring his army to East Tennessee, and now that Bragg and his men were actually here, Kirby Smith indicated he was willing to play his part in Bragg's plan for a campaign to reconquer Middle Tennessee and retake the state capital of Nashville, which which the Yankees had captured back in February. However, Smith did press for a preliminary operation aimed at prying the Federals out of Cumberland Gap. This, he said, was really a necessary prerequisite to any movement against Nashville. After much discussion, Bragg agreed that Smith would first advance against the Gap with about 20,000 men, including two newly arrived brigades from Bragg's army, and then once Cumberland Gap was recaptured, Smith would march to link up with Bragg, and together they would mount a coordinated operation against Nashville. Well, that was the plan, anyway. 
But Kirby Smith returned to Knoxville and apparently almost immediately began having second thoughts about his agreement with Bragg. Edmund Kirby Smith was 38 years old when he and Braxton Bragg met in Chattanooga. He was a native Floridian who, at the age of 17, had entered West Point. He graduated in 1845 in the middle of his class. He saw action during the War with Mexico and was breveted for gallantry at the Battle of Cerro Gordo and the Battles of Contreras and Churubusco. In 1849, he returned to West Point to teach mathematics and remained there until 1852. He was promoted to first lieutenant in 1851, and in 1855 he became a captain in the new 2nd Cavalry Regiment, and he compiled an impressive record as an Indian fighter. He was promoted to major in January of 1861. Kirby Smith opposed secession, but when his home state of Florida left the Union, he resigned from the U.S. Army and accepted a commission as a lieutenant colonel in the Confederate Army. At the outset of the Civil War, Smith was Joseph E. Johnston's chief of staff and helped train incoming recruits at Harper's Ferry. In June of 1861, he was promoted to Brigadier General and took command of a brigade in Johnston's Army of the Shenandoah. At the Battle of First Manassas in July, Kirby Smith's brigade was the last of Johnston's units to arrive on the battlefield, but Smith launched a smashing counterattack that started the Federal rout. Although wounded in that action, Kirby Smith emerged, along with Stonewall Jackson, as one of the principal heroes of the Confederate victory at First Manassas. He was sent to East Tennessee in February 1862 with the dual mission of defending the region and holding down the restless pro-Union citizenry. Smith's assignment in Knoxville was an important posting, but offered less opportunity for glory than some of his peers' commands. By the summer of 1862, Kirby Smith, who was an egocentric and vain man, was looking for the chance to regain some of the fame and success he'd enjoyed as a result of his performance at First Manassas. It's not known when exactly Kirby Smith decided to change the plans that he and Bragg had agreed upon at their meeting in Chattanooga, but at some point, what historian Kenneth Noe called, quote, Kentucky's siren song of glory began to tempt Smith. For some time, exiled pro-Confederate Kentucky politicians, claiming the population was really on the side of the Confederacy, had been pressuring Jefferson Davis for re a renewed rebel offensive into the bluegrass state. And Kentucky native John Hunt Morgan had led a raid of 900 Confederate cavalry toward Lexington in July, and he reported to Kirby Smith that, quote, I am here with a force sufficient to hold the country outside Lexington and Frankfurt. These places are garrisoned chiefly by half-trained home guard. The whole country can be secured, and 25,000 or 30,000 men will join you at once. The temptation to strike into central Kentucky grew stronger when Kirby Smith thought about what it would take to overcome Union General George Morgan's well-supplied garrison of 9,000 Yankees at Cumberland Gap. 
With Buell still crawling eastward toward Chattanooga, Bragg's plan to reconquer Middle Tennessee and recapture Nashville depended on speed and the need to avoid a long siege at Cumberland Gap, but the federal garrison there was too strong to be defeated quickly. The prospect of marching up into north-central Kentucky and raking in vast amounts of supplies and signing up thousands of eager recruits also seemed too good to pass up. Kirby Smith was also surely aware that Lexington itself would be a splendid prize. The home of John C. Breckinridge, Mary Lincoln, and the late Henry Clay, the city in the heart of the bluegrass, was known as the Athens of the West. And so on August 9th, just over a week after returning to Knoxville, Smith wrote to Bragg, saying, quote, I understand General Morgan has at Cumberland Gap nearly a month's supply of provisions. If this be true, the reduction of the place would be a matter of more time than I presume you are willing I should take. As my move direct to Lexington, Kentucky, would effectually invest Morgan and would be attended with other most brilliant results in my judgment, I suggest my being allowed to take that course if I find the speedy reduction of the gap an impracticable thing. Maybe the awkward command situation meant Bragg didn't feel he could hold Kirby Smith to the original plan, or maybe Bragg, too, was already having second thoughts about the Nashville operation. But whatever the case, Bragg replied in a message to Smith that now he was also leaning toward a strike into Kentucky. And suddenly, just like that, with Bragg's waffling, the Confederate objective had shifted from Middle Tennessee and Nashville to north-central Kentucky and Lexington. Bragg's agreement delighted Kirby Smith, who quickly made final preparations for a strike north into the Bluegrass State. One of the clues his men received concerning their destination was that Smith renamed his command the Army of Kentucky. On August 14, 1862, Smith led his 20,000 troops out of Knoxville and headed north into the mountains, and the Kentucky campaign was underway. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor a revolutionary, and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. 
I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history, and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change, but it's also a story about people populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. While Braxton Bragg was still assembling his force as it continued to arrive in Chattanooga, Kirby Smith and the Confederate Army of Kentucky entered the Bluegrass State by way of Rogers Gap on August 16th. Smith's command was made up of four divisions of unequal size. Carter Stevenson, a Virginian, commanded the 1st Division of 9,000 men, by far the largest in the Army. Another Virginian, Henry Heath, led the 2nd Division of 6,000 men. The 3,000 men of the 3rd Division were led by a Texan, Thomas W. Churchill, who was temporarily commanding in place of John McCown, who had been left behind in Knoxville to be in charge of East Tennessee in Kirby Smith's absence. The 4th Division was a makeshift command of two brigades on loan from Bragg's army. The 3,000 men of the 4th Division were commanded by a rising star named Patrick Claiborne, a native of Ireland and a veteran of the British Army, who had settled in, in Arkansas before the Civil War. Colonel John Scott's 1,000 cavalrymen rounded out Kirby Smith's force. The immediate Confederate objective was to cut George Morgan's supply lines back to Lexington and force him to retreat from Cumberland Gap. Kirby Smith detached Stevenson's division to approach the gap from the south, while the other three divisions moved northwest toward Barberville and London. As the rebels plunged deeper into Kentucky, they found the region was in the grip of a devastating three-month drought. Besides that, the locals, contrary to John Hunt Morgan's boast, viewed the Confederates with suspicion and outright hostility. Typical of their attitude was the response one of the rebel cavalrymen received from a member of the family sitting on a porch. Where does this road go? asked the horseman. The answer? Don't go nowhere, damn it. It stays right here. Well, in a letter to his wife, Smith put it succinctly, saying, quote, the people are bitterly and violently opposed to us. Federal detachments at Barberville and London put up stiff fights, but superior Confederate numbers carried the day. By August 20th, Morgan's garrison at Cumberland Gap was isolated and was pinned in place by Stevenson's rebels. As the other three Confederate divisions consolidated their position, Colonel Scott's cavalry ranged north along the Old State Road, which led to Richmond and Lexington. They routed some raw Kentucky cavalrymen at Big Hill on August 23rd. The rebel horsemen encamped near Richmond that night. The next morning, Scott retired back southward and reported to Kirby Smith that the way to Lexington appeared wide open. The news of Kirby Smith's march into Kentucky was a shock to the Union High Command. Smith's advance to Barberville meant that Morgan's command, the largest Union force in the Bluegrass State east of the Tennessee River, was now cut off at Cumberland Gap. 
Aside from some raw cavalry, the only other organized federal unit in Kirby Smith's path was the 18th Kentucky Infantry, which was posted along the railroad between Lexington and Cincinnati. Brigadier General Jeremiah Boyle, the federal military commander in Kentucky, frantically appealed for help to higher authorities as soon as Confederate intentions became clear. As a result, reinforcements, mostly new recruits only just mustered into service, began streaming down from Indiana and Ohio. Henry Halleck, recently installed in Washington as General-in-Chief, realized the danger at once and rearranged the Union command structure by placing Major General Horatio Wright in command over a reorganized Department of the Ohio. By the time Colonel Scott and his rebel cavalrymen approached Richmond on August 23rd, a federal force had begun to coalesce around Lexington, and within days it would number 8,000 men. The new federal force concentrating at Lexington was also styled the Army of Kentucky, and it was destined to have a short and turbulent career. Its first commander was Major General Lew Wallace, who was sitting in the corner, so to speak, back home in Indiana after falling into Grant's bad graces because of his performance at the Battle of Shiloh. At any rate, Wallace quickly organized the defenses around Lexington and proposed to make a stand along the high bluffs that bordered the Kentucky River Valley just to the south of the city. In that area, the river could be crossed at just three spots, and the terrain favored the defenders. Wallace was assisted by a fiery Kentuckian, Major General Marcellus Clay, who happened to be in the region on a fact-finding mission from President Lincoln. Clay had an estate just south of the river near Richmond, and his local knowledge was a valuable asset to Wallace. Both men agreed that the Kentucky River was the best place to stop the advancing Confederates. And then, just to make things really interesting, at least from a storytelling point of view, in response to Boyle's initial pleas for help, Buell detached several generals from his Army of the Ohio and sent them north to help organize the defense of Kentucky. The highest ranking of them was Major General William Nelson. A Kentucky native, Nelson had served in the U.S. Navy before the Civil War. But because he was from a politically well-connected family, after the start of the war, he ended up in the Bluegrass State, recruiting and training and arming pro-Union Kentuckians while the state was still officially neutral. Nelson was a um, very large man, standing six feet five inches tall and tipping the scales at over 300 pounds. Because of his size and because of his loud, aggressive personality, he was nicknamed Bull. He had commanded a division in the Army of the Ohio at the Battle of Shiloh. Now, in response to the unfolding crisis in Kentucky, Nelson arrived in Louisville on August 20th. Accompanying him were two of his subordinates, Brigadier Generals Charles Cruft and Malin Manson, both Indianans. In Louisville, the men found pandemonium. After quarreling with new department commander Wright over strategy and command responsibilities, Nelson made his way to Lexington and sent Lew Wallace packing. Clay, despite his local knowledge, didn't last much longer with Nelson. He and Bull were too alike in personality to get along. Nelson set about reorganizing the federal troops that had been concentrating around Lexington. 
He gave Cruft and Manson each an infantry brigade and turned the cavalry over to Kentucky-born Brigadier General James S. Jackson. Aggressively, Bull Nelson ordered his infantry to march south across the Kentucky River to Richmond, with Manson commanding the column. The Federal horsemen were sent southwest to guard roads and the vital supply depot at Camp Dick Robinson. While the Union command buzzed with frantic preparation, Kirby Smith at Barberville plotted his next move. Colonel Scott's report that the way to Lexington seemed wide open merely confirmed Smith's own inclination to press on, and so, sensing a great prize lay within reach, he made his decision. Leaving Stevenson at Cumberland Gap and Heath at Barberville, Kirby Kirby Smith set the rest of his army in motion once again, aiming for Richmond and Lexington. As we mentioned in the last show, Kirby Smith had obviously decided that Kentucky was the stage upon which he would win glory and enjoy even greater success than he had known at Manassas. He wrote to his wife, telling her, quote, My expedition is something like Cortez. I have burnt my ships behind me and thrown myself boldly into the enemy's country. The results may be brilliant, and if successful, will be considered a stroke of inspiration and genius. <laughs> okay, well, that remained to be seen, of course. But on August 25th, in oppressive heat, and as the countryside lay in the grip of a terrible drought, the Confederate Army of Kentucky again took to the road. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is General Edmund Kirby Smith, CSA, by Joseph H. Parks. Yeah, um, if you're interested in picking up a biography of Kirby Smith, there actually aren't that many choices uh, that we're aware of, at least. With that in mind, Park's book isn't perfect, but it'll do if you're interested in learning more about a man who, by the end of the war, was one of the more fascinating figures in the Confederacy. So that's General Edmund Kirby Smith, CSA, by Joseph H. Parks. You can find a list of all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. Also at the website, you can sign up to become a member of the Strawfoot Brigade. Just yesterday, we released the 58th members episode, and with that show, we started a short story arc in which we're going to look at journalism and the press during the Civil War. And you also find out which one of our grandfathers was a war correspondent during World War II. Exactly. Uh, so, of course, we want to say thank you to the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade, Carrillo, Carl, Brian, and Samuel. And we also want to thank Rowan S. and David M. for their donations to the podcast this past week. Okay, uh, so we're giving you guys kind of a short episode this week, but with the holiday weekend here in the States for Labor Day, we thought you'd forgive us. Uh, but anyway, thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope you join us again next time when we look at what was probably the most lopsided victory of the war at the Battle of Richmond. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.